0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us here at Center Street Church, those of us meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those watching from one of our campuses in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to say hello to our online viewers as well. Last weekend, Pastor Henry started a new sermon series from the New Testament book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae, which today is part of modern-day Turkey. Paul himself had never visited the city, and the church was uh, most probably started by one of uh, Paul's converts, Epaphras. Paul wrote this uh, key letter to deal with some doctrinal heresies that had infiltrated into the Colossian church that undermined the deity of Jesus. For everything worthwhile, there seems to be a counterfeit. It is important that you know the difference between what is real and what is phony so we don't get deceived. The city of Colossae was a perfect breeding ground for cults. Situated on a major trade route, they entertained a steady stream of traders who brought in strange religious ideas like worship of angels and spirits and practice of a strict form of spirituality in order to earn your acceptance with God. Therefore, Paul's focus in the entire book of Colossians is the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Today our North American cities are filled with a plethora of religious ideas and beliefs and there are so many variations of the gospel. We are surrounded by all kinds of counterfeit spirituality and that's why the book of Colossians speaks to us so relevantly today even though it was written centuries earlier. Last weekend Pastor Henry spoke from Colossians chapter one verses 15 to 23. And this passage is one of the crown jewels of the New Testament. It outrightly proclaims the preeminence of Jesus. That Jesus is not a created being. He is God himself. He's 100% divine, 100% human. And Jesus is the undisputed head of the church. I want to speak today from the next section in Colossians where Paul talks about a secret that has been entrusted to all believers would you please stand as we read our text from Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 to chapter 2 verse 5 now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Lord, we want our faith in Christ to be firm, rooted, that we continue to grow in our maturity in becoming more like Jesus. God, we thank you that you accomplish all of that through the preaching of your word and you speak to each one of us individually. God, we are open to your voice today. Come and speak to us, teach us, admonish us, convict us and correct us. God, that we will be better stewards of this secret that you've entrusted to each one of us. So we commit this time to the leading of your spirit. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. For a whole year, a young man lived in isolation in a remote Arctic mountain. He risked his life on the flight getting into this dangerous area. And he risked his life almost every single day as he walked on trails of thin ice which gave away when he struggled under a heavy backpack. He shared his cold tent with mice and mosquitoes. He experimented with a diet of boiled, fried, or charred mice. He concluded that the best way to eat mice is to barbecue them. (laughs) Now, why would any sensible person willingly subject himself to such hardships? The young man's name was Farley Mowat, a Canadian environmentalist. Farley had a goal that motivated him to endure intense suffering. It's not a goal that tugs my heartstrings, but Farley was obsessed by it. He wanted to learn the relationship between wolves and the diminishing caribou herds. And his labor flowed out of his quest to crack this mystery. You know, when our human heart is grabbed by a compelling vision, it is amazing to see the extent we are willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish objective. The Apostle Paul reveals in this section of scripture the absolute compelling passion of his heart. This one purpose transcended everything else Paul did. It was the reason for his living why he woke up every morning. He was so enthralled by this compelling vision that it completely changed the trajectory of his life. It caused him to suffer more than anyone else in his time. And if we are gripped by this one thing that Paul was gripped with, I tell you, it will change the course of our life. What is that one thing that Paul was referring to? That is the crux of this section of Scripture we read. It is the mystery our secret that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to us. God had personally entrusted this mystery to Paul. He was the guardian of this new revelation, and he lived every day to promote this message. The word mystery appears three times in this short section of Scripture. What is the mystery of the ages? Let's look at Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27. The mystery that has been kept hidden for all ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word mystery in the New Testament denotes to something which can only be understood through divine revelation. Paul was a Jew. Not just a Jew, he was a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee, he was a young, aspiring leader who had a great future in Judaism. There were few people who were more devoted to following the rules and regulations of the law than Paul. And Paul very well knew that in the Old Covenant, God's presence dwelt in the temple in the Holy of Holies. The temple had a big veil to separate the Holy of Holies from people, signifying that access to God is closed. But Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus, an experience that opened his eyes to the truth. And ever since... Paul's heart was captivated by the mystery of God, the mystery of the ages. The intentional use of the word mystery in this letter to Colossians was to get the attention of the Colossian church influenced by Gnostic teachings. They were keen on mysteries and secret knowledge and esoteric experiences and they considered that this secret they possessed was available only for a few people, the ones who were initiated. It was like an elite exclusive club like the Freemasons. But in contrast, Paul tells us that the mystery or secret has been unveiled in Christ and made available not just to a few people but to all who trust in Jesus. This is an open secret, it's a universal revelation. In fact, all of the Old Testament pointed towards this mystery. So that means today you and I know something that Abraham, the father of our faith, did not know. Moses, Samuel, David, Ruth, Esther, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of these great men and women of the Old Testament did not know the secret that has now been revealed to us. They lived in the shadows while we get to live in the full light. So what is this mystery? What is this secret? Look at verse 27 of Colossians chapter 1 again. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. Newsflash. God does not live in temples made with human hands. He lives in the heart of men and women who love him and worship him. Newsflash. Jesus is the Messiah but he came not just for the Jews. He came for every single people group in this world. He is a universal savior. God's plan all along has been to restore the effects of the fall by sending his own son who will establish God's kingdom in the hearts of all who believe in him. So this Jesus whom Paul referenced in Colossians 1:15 to 23, this Jesus who is divine, who is the fullness of God, the one who made the world, the one who rules and has absolute dominion over powers and authorities, the Jesus who holds all things, in whom all things consist, the one who is the Lord and undisputed head of the church, whose presence even the heavens cannot contain, now lives presently within the hearts of all who trust in him. Now, isn't that an incredible revelation? When an individual puts his faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus himself comes to live in the heart of that individual through the Holy Spirit. And it is this truth that gives us the assurance that we will share in the hope of future glory. The Colossians did not have to lose sleep over the question, is Jesus Christ enough? For Jesus alone fulfills the spiritual aspirations and offers the guarantee of a glorious hope for the future. Paul tells in Colossians 2, verse 3, In him, Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That one phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory, encapsulates the whole gospel. Jews, Gentiles, and every single people group are brought together and unified by the presence of the indwelling Jesus who makes us all as part of one single God's family. Paul is so captivated by this idea of who Jesus is and what he has done for us that he lived the rest of his life to proclaim this very message. Now before we go any further, I want us to be gripped by the reality of this statement, Christ in you. If you are a Christian, Jesus is in you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a spiritual billionaire now and you've been promised a future glory that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, or nor the human mind even conceived. And all of this is because of Christ living in you. I want to share two points that Paul was trying to emphasize in this section of Colossians. In light of these truths about the mystery and the secret that has been entrusted to us, we find these two truths stand out. Firstly, God has entrusted us with the secret. Colossians 1 verse 25, Paul says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Ever since Paul had an encounter with this risen Jesus, he knew that God had set him apart for a unique, special task. God had made Paul an overseer of this mystery to tell the world that Jesus is God's plan of salvation for all people. Paul was a minister of this truth. The word Minister does not refer to an exalted position or a religious title, but the word simply means an ordinary servant. Paul was a minister of the gospel. And it's not just Paul who has been called to be a minister of the gospel. Each one of us who follow Christ have been given the same commission. It is your primary Christian calling to be ambassadors of Jesus and a steward of God's secret. The word calling literally means to be summoned. So the king has summoned you, called you, to represent him to the world and declare this mystery, hidden all through the ages and generations, but now disclosed for everyone to see through Jesus Christ. Evangelical theologian, John Stott, writes, the call of God is to share his own mission in the world. First he sent his son, then he sent his spirit. Now he sends his church, that is us. He sends us out by his spirit into his world to announce his son's salvation. He worked through his son to achieve it. He works through us to make it known. Your calling and my calling is fundamentally the same. If you are a follower of Christ, all of your life has one unifying purpose to announce Jesus' salvation. It is the work that transcends all other vocation. This is the ultimate purpose against which we measure all other goals in our Christian life. Paul was a tent maker. He built tents that served as gathering places or homes. So that was his trade. Paul was a tradesman. But he never defined himself by this vocation. But he defined himself by a work that this vocation was intended to serve. So what that means is your work, whatever you do for your living, is not an end in itself. It is a means to a greater end, which is to make Jesus Christ known. If you were at church last weekend, you would have heard powerful testimonies of people who were baptized in our services. One of the stories was about a lady from our church working at Sears, and she shared her faith with her colleagues and saw two other ladies come to faith as a result, and they were baptized here in our church last Sunday. And these baptisms were a result of one person recognizing that her primary calling in life is not to work at Sears, but her workplace is a God-given context to live out the gospel. Now imagine if all of us start doing that in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in all places where our life intersects, what an impact we will have on our city. Whether you're a lawyer, doctor, plumber, construction worker, teacher, whether you're a homemaker or a student, or you are retired, we all have one calling, to announce the salvation of Jesus, declare the secret that God himself wants to dwell in the hearts of people through faith. Now this doesn't mean that we all are going to be evangelists running around with gospel tracts in our workplaces. But it does mean that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have in us. It means that, in the words of John Dixon, we are are to live lives worth questioning and offer responses worth hearing. It means that we surrender to God our gifts and unique abilities, talents and skills, our personality and passion, our temperament and character, so God can use each one of us in unique ways to declare His salvation. And when we join hands together in community, we become a lighthouse for Jesus. We shine forth His light in a world surrounded by darkness. So every Christian is entrusted with the secret of Jesus and called to give it away. Here's a second point that Paul emphasizes in this section of scripture. Suffering is inevitable in advancing God's mission. The thrust of our passage is Paul's labor for the church. His sacrifices to advance God's mission. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter to the Colossians. Tied to Paul's commission when he came to faith was also the call to suffer. I love what Jesus said about Paul to Ananias in Acts chapter 9. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Suffering was part and parcel of Paul's apostolic calling. But as you read Paul's writings, you will glean that this suffering was not just unique to Paul, it's a part and parcel of faithful Christian living. So in Colossians 1 verse 24, Paul says, "'Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, "'and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking "'in regard to Christ's afflictions "'for the sake of his body, which is the church.'" Paul rejoices in his suffering because his suffering served an ultimate purpose, the advancement of God's mission. Paul is not delighting in suffering per se. For that would be an Eastern view of suffering, embracing suffering because of its inherent value, and that is nonsense. By the way, the Western view of suffering is to avoid pain at all costs. But the biblical view of suffering is this, engage wholeheartedly in the work of God and if suffering comes our way, that's okay. Paul tells in our text, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in Christ's affliction. Now if you don't understand this correctly, what Paul is saying here may seem like a heresy. For you may wonder, isn't the atoning death of Jesus all sufficient for our salvation? What can possibly be lacking in Christ's affliction? Did Jesus himself say on the cross, it is finished? Is the ransom that Jesus paid not enough to reconcile us to God? Do we need something more than that? Listen to me here. The death of Jesus Christ is the only ransom for our salvation, and it is all sufficient. No one can add to the value of the atonement. Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sins. Paul himself affirms this truth in the book of Colossians and elsewhere in his writings. So what does it mean when Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. In the book, Desiring God, John Piper helps us to understand this text better. He states, Paul's sufferings complete Christ's affliction, not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. Now think about this. What is lacking in Christ's suffering is the knowledge that Jesus suffered. People are living self-centered lives, unaware and unmindful of the suffering Savior and his unconditional love for them. And it's gonna take suffering on your part and my part in order to be able to take this message to those people. So Paul says in Galatians 6, 17, the last part of the verse, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So in his willingness to suffer for this mystery, Paul pointed people to the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus has not given us a kingdom that advances by the sword or military conquest or force. This is a kingdom that advances through loving sacrifices of God's people. And I tell you, rarely would you see someone come to faith in Jesus without the sacrifices of other Christians. There are many places in the world today where suffering is a day-to-day reality for Christians. And Christ's mission advances Through pain, torture, and affliction. When my wife and I were living in India, we were a young couple in our early 20s, pastoring a church in the northwest part of India, which is one of the least evangelized regions in the entire 10 by 40 window. And it was difficult to find a house for rent because I was a pastor. When people found out I worked for a church, they blatantly refused to give us a house to stay. I tell you, those are sweet days when we got to share a little bit in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And we learned to be on our knees for even our basic needs to be met. That which we so take for granted in our North American culture. I tell you, churches in our Western world have an inadequate understanding of the theology of suffering. And I'm convinced that that's one of the reasons why we are seeing its decline. For the Bible emphatically says this all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No exceptions. Does this apply to Christians in North America? Absolutely does. We may not have the same degree of physical persecutions like in other parts of the world, but the hostility is increasing day by day. About a year ago, I received an email from a young lady who was studying at a university in eastern Canada. She mentioned, as a Christian... She was a minority in her class and she found herself in a place where she was being challenged daily regarding her faith and why she believes what she believes. One of her history profs was a religious skeptic. The biggest challenge arose when the class was broken into groups to examine various passages of the Bible and concepts such as Trinity and the deity of Jesus. The young Christian lady was placed in a discussion group with an atheist, a Hindu, and three others who were trying to figure out what they believed. It was a real, real test of her faith, and it was hard, she said. But as she persevered, at the end of the semester, God gave her the opportunity, and she wrote a final essay and presented to a class who Christians believe Jesus is, our views on eternal life, and how it is different from other religions. She's been watching our services online. And she wrote an email to thank Senestry Church for the sermons which have strengthened her own faith and equipped her to respond to her critics. This is the graduation season. Some of you high school graduates You may be stepping into university this fall, so I wanna speak to you for a moment. You are about to enter an arena that is adverse to the gospel. This is not an easy setting. It will be hostile. Your profs are going to challenge your convictions with the intent of destroying it. Fellow students will ridicule your faith. You may be singled out as a Christian, and there will be such pressure to conform to the lifestyle of the world. But in the midst of all of this, just know this, that God has called you to be an ambassador of the gospel in that hostile setting. For our academia desperately needs the light of the gospel. And Jesus has handpicked you and placed you right there so your faith can shine ever so brightly in the midst of the opposition. So don't ever be disheartened, but stand strong for the glory of God. And he will use you to do great things. I want us to look at Paul's labor as a servant of the gospel. Colossians 1, 29, Paul says, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. The very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea, and for many other believers who have never met me personally. The word used for work or labor in our text is work that will leave you weary like you've been beaten. The word in chapter 2, verse 1, translated as struggle or contend in most translations is a stronger word from which we get our English word, agony. The word was originally used in the context of an athletic race where the runner exerts all their energy in order to win an agonizing race. It doesn't matter what our geographical context is. That's how you and I are called to labor for the gospel. With our heart, soul, mind, and strength poured out into advancing the mission and kingdom of Jesus Christ. One of the faithful volunteers in our new Canadian Friendship Center ever since we started this ministry is a lady maybe in her 80s. She takes care of the babies so their moms can attend English classes and learn to speak better English. And this precious grandma, well into her 80s, has still not stopped serving Jesus. For she believes from her heart, you may retire from your vocation, but you cannot retire from your calling to make Jesus Christ known and labor for him, even in the last leg of your life. And it's people like this who sets a powerful example for each one of us to follow. How do we find the strength to live such a countercultural life? When our counterparts are obsessed with buying big motorboats and going on expensive, lavish vacations and building dream houses for themselves, how do we swim against the tide? The answer to that question brings us back to the sacred that you and I are called to communicate. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Paul says here: the source of our strength to live a countercultural life is Jesus Himself. While Paul does the toil, it's Jesus who supplies the required strength. There are many things that are impossible for us. But thank God nothing is impossible with Jesus. Left to ourselves, we all will pursue the Canadian dream and live in ease and comfort and waste our lives on trivialities. But the Jesus who lives in us makes all the difference. For he fills you with his love, his power, his passion, and his priorities, so that it is no longer we who live, but Jesus himself lives his life through you and me. Let me close with this. In the American cemetery in Cairo, Egypt, Lies the neglected grave of William Borden, one of the forgotten missionaries of the 20th century. He was born in the year 1887. William was a millionaire by age 21 as a heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. He renounced his fortune, giving nearly all his wealth to missions. His heart's desire was to take the gospel to the unreached people groups of the world. When Borden was a student at Yale, he was instrumental in starting a prayer movement that spread across the campus, which grew significantly. They called themselves the student volunteer movement, and their motto was the evangelization of the world in their generation. William Borden was gripped by the fact that 15 million Muslims in China did not have a single evangelical witness during his time. After graduating from Yale and later Princeton, he turned away many job opportunities and dedicated his life to serving Jesus in China. On his way to China, William stopped in Egypt to study Arabic Four months later, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. News of his premature death was published all across newspapers in America, and people saw it as a tragedy, a life with such immense potential thrown away. These were the words printed in Borden's Bible in his own handwriting. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Author Randy Alcon shares about his experience of visiting this abandoned cemetery in Cairo and looking at Borden's gravestone. And Alcon writes these words. I dusted off the inscription on the headstone of Borden's grave. After describing his love for Christ and his commitment to and his love for the Muslim people and his sacrifices for God's kingdom, the inscription ended with words I wrote down on the spot and I have never forgotten them to this day. The final words on Borden's tombstone were these. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And Alcon says, I thought at that moment, Lord, what's the explanation for my life? God calls very few people to be missionaries who go to far off places. But he wants every single Christian to live with no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. So the world that watches us and how we live our life will come to understand, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Ask all of us to stand as we come to an end. Remember what I said in the beginning? When our human heart is grabbed with a compelling vision, it is amazing to see the extent we are willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish its objective. God has entrusted you with a sacred trust, the gospel heart's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ has your heart been grabbed by this compelling vision if so how is it reflected in how you live your life I want us to just close our eyes for a moment just listen to the still small voice of God this is a moment when God is speaking to several of us God may give you a new burden for a ministry. He may call you to involve in an area, a ministry area here in our church. God may call you to walk out of your comfort zone. Just whatever he's prompting you, would you be sensitive to his voice at this moment? So we'll maintain a moment of silence and then I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we do want to live our life in such a way that apart from faith in Christ, there would be no explanation for such a life. God, thank you for this incredible revelation that Jesus himself lives in our heart and gives us the power and the strength to labor and to work for you and your kingdom. God, we pray that you will supply us with the strength, with the passion, with the power to realign our priorities. God, that you will use each one of us as ministers of the gospel, servants of the church. That Lord, through our lives, through our testimony, by using our gifts and talents, we will be able to declare the glory of God of what a good and awesome God you are. God, we pray that each one of us will be salt and light wherever you have placed us, that the power of the gospel will sweep through our city, that people who are living in darkness will come to the light. We pray, God, for a great revival in our midst. God, speak to us. May we never leave this place the way we came in transform us Lord deeply give us an abiding passion that will never die but it will burn brightly all the days of our life so we give ourselves to you today and even as we leave this place may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of our heavenly Father And the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.